You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simond. I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. A new player joins the game. We've actually got someone new on the team and we announced it on social media already. That would be Richard Mertens. If you have heard the name before, then that is because we thanked him several times on the show already because he's been editing our episodes. And doing a bang-up job, I must say. Ah, and fantastic. You, you may also, uh, for the record, that name may be familiar to you if you're familiar with the podcast The Pike Horror Show, which is his own podcast endeavor. Yes, he has his own show, The Pike Horror Show. We can put that in the show notes in case you want to check it out. It might also be that sometime soon we've got something on studying pixels involving Richard a little bit more. But for the time being, we invited him on our episode today in order to talk about Lovecraft and cosmic horror. We're going to have a whole lot to say about our passion for Lovecraft, about our problems with Lovecraft, and of course, about Bloodborne. What else? <laughs> <laughs> it all goes back to Bloodborne, Stefan. But before we go into that, let me briefly remind you that if you like this show, there is a way that you can help us make it happen. Because at the end of the day, we need to keep the lights on. And if you want to help us in doing that, then you can join Studying Pixels Plus. There, you will get all of our episodes entirely ad-free. You'll get a lovely sticker and monthly plus episodes. Sometimes they are deep dives into video game culture. Other times, they actually help you study. If you're curious about that, then you can go to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, Richard. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Dan. Hey. Well, we're finally doing it. So you've been... Uh... You've, uh, you're here. We're going to talk about our favorite weirdo, H.P. Lovecraft. Well, I thought we were going to talk about me. <laughs> I got a little worried there for uh, a second. Our favorite weirdo. <laughs> I was I was flattered, but then offended in the same breath. <laughs> Lovecraft and Lovecraftian aesthetics is something that's been on our mind for quite a while now. We addressed the subject fleetingly on several episodes because it's just part of some of our favorite games. But before we get into that, we first 
obviously need to know, Richard, what got you into Lovecraft. Yeah, it's not it's not a terribly glamorous story. I'm not. I didn't uh, deep dive in the the history of literature or anything. Um, I did love Bloodborne though, and Bloodborne was the only reason I bought a PlayStation Four. <laughs> and because ah. I knew I'd like, I knew I'd like it because it was a FromSoft game. And then I was like, "What's all the? Who are all these tentacle folk around? I must know. I must know more." And it, it did. It was like Lovecraftian, and then the imagery was so obvious when I looked a little more into it. And I, of course, being just like some punk, I got like a huge, a huge collection that you have such high hopes for when you buy a book. You have such high hopes that you're going to read it consistently or at all. But like, I read through like the first few pages, and I was like, "This is old." So I put it on the shelf until I was a little bit older. And then in the past few years, I've gotten back into it and sort of understood, um, I guess, past just the the aesthetics that are borrowed a lot. And now I'm, I'm still relatively new is my point. I didn't want to, uh, I'm not an expert by any, by any caliber. Oh, but I think it's a fairly common experience, right? That you, you basically go down this rabbit hole of figuring out where inspirations come from and then you go to the source material and immediately bounce off of it because you realize, wow, this is a completely different thing, right? Like, I get what how Bloodborne lends aesthetics from Lovecraft, but it's clearly not the same thing. Sure. <laughs> You're right. I think one thing to note about H.P. Lovecraft, so he wrote in the in the early 1900s and he spoke like someone from the early 1900s. So... <laughs> Uh, for, for good and for ill, I should say he was not a very, <laughs> he was not a very nice man. We should get that out of the, out of the gate right now. Sure. That is for sure. An important thing yeah. to touch on. Um, he was, but he was a bit of a racist to put it, uh, lightly, but yeah, it's, I, I had the same experience, Richard, where it's, uh, I had, it wasn't Bloodborne. I got into it a little bit before Bloodborne, but I definitely had to take my time with his writing because it's, it's a little off putting the first time you experience it. Yeah, he definitely does not necessarily make it easy or very accessible to get into the stuff. Mm. I guess it, there is also a, a kind of just, you could say maybe writing style of the time that lends itself to being deliberately eloquent, especially because often the perspectives, the narrative's perspectives that Lovecraft employed were then authors themselves or scholars or people who explored scholarly writing, right? He was almost obsessed with the advances of science, you know, the grasp of scientific development. And and I think that is, that's such a good observation. Um, just touching on writing style a little bit, the way a lot of his writings are from a first person's perspective or they're from a journal or an article, or some of them are as mm. simple as, hey, I'm your friend and I'm going to tell you this story. And I think that is so immersive. Like that's why I think the audiobooks are really effective because it's it's a person telling you this story. But when you read them, sometimes it's just a wall of text that you have to kind of make your way through and break down piece by piece. And I'm it's not something I do typically for fun. Um, so knowing that the promise of like a big scary monster may be in the mix somewhere, it does keep me going as a as I make it through. He does play around with that a lot. I recently reread. Call of Cthulhu, the the short story. And while it's definitely not my favorite short story of his, but I do I did it did strike me that when the entire thing is told by like someone who basically reads through reports and assembles this kind of mythological story, and at the end of this report, 
stands this phrase of like, I hope that nobody shall read this report because it's far too dangerous and now I know too much. And it, it, obviously in this, it's kind of like it has a metaleptical quality to it as if it almost points to you as a reader and says, well, you have just read that story. You know, you just <laughs> have read that account. Now you know too much as well. It's very eerie. Absolutely. And I think in, I, I want to say it's my favorite, but I might be might be getting ahead of myself. Um, At the Mountains of Madness has, has this, this setup of here's the report that I'm going to release to the world. Here's what actually happened. So it breaks it up into those two little parts. And there is something super off-putting of someone saying, I know you won't believe this, but if I don't say this, it'll never be written down. No one will ever know what happened. Um, this is the story you'll hear in the news and through people, but this is like the reality of what happened. And I just thought that was such an such an awesome storytelling mechanic that you couldn't use in any other medium, really. I don't think, not as efficiently at least. I agree. I think one of the cool things about what you've both just brought up is that, yeah, there's this there's this distancing that all of the narrators give, but it's also a distancing out of desperation. Like I need to, I need to impart this information to somebody. And I know that by doing so, I'm going to be damning you to the same fate as me, but it's like this infection where I have to get it out. And I think like, obviously when you go into something like that and you look at a game like Bloodborne, which is all about inf the infectious nature of knowledge and trying to understand that which we shouldn't, you, you look at Bloodborne and you think, of course that's a Lovecraft game. It has no choice but to be a Lovecraftian game. Yeah, knowledge is such a crucial topic because at the time when Lovecraft was, was writing, um, it seems, or, or I would describe it as a time where knowledge expanded radically, where the natural sciences made tremendous progress, where uh, the basically the, the early stages of psychoanalysis developed kind of re understanding a little bit more about how the mind works. And that kind of expanse of knowledge, it demystified a lot of things about the world. We learned to explain a lot of things in a rational manner. And at the same time, by doing so, we discovered something that is very striking, and that is how little we actually know. <laughs> so we realized that there's still so many things. Like, you know, when you, when you discover as a human species that there's you make this new discovery. Wow, the universe is out there. There's a, there's a universe. There are other planets. And while you have learned something new, you at the same time are like struck by this overwhelming realization. We've seen nothing of these planets. We've seen nothing of the universe yet. And I think that's kind of like a crucial experience that that kind of pervades a lot of Lovecraftian writing. And I think that's a, a terrific point. The, the way you said like it's demystifying. So, of course, if your world is slowly losing its luster and its its mystery, where do you go? You go, like you said, beyond the stars. You pull from the deep reaches of space, and then you start reaching into different realities, different dimensions, and and sort of going from each one, I guess, freely and connecting them, but separating them. And so it's not just, I saw a ghost. You know, it's, it's much more complicated. <laughs> you know, you're in a dream of a squid, <laughs> and then the squid has friends. It's a, I'm, I'm clearly <laughs> oversimplifying it, but, but just the Not idea that much, you, <laughs> and I wish by more actually, but, um, just the, the reaching to try and find something that's still new and scary when everything that you thought was scary is slowly being, you know, picked apart by numbers and, and, um, studies and, and new finds. Yeah. It struck me when yesterday I reread 
probably my favorite short story by Lovecraft, which would be The Color Out of Space. It's a great one. It's, it's basically about this meteorite that strikes in a farmland. And uh, like there are scholars obviously approaching, tearing this meteorite apart and discover some strange kind of color substance. And then over time, this color substance, it leaks into the well and it takes over the entire land and it kills people. It's like pretty, pretty terrible. It's like a tremendous, <laughs> like it, it constantly escalates. That's what I love about this story. It like keeps escalating and you know it's going to get worse and worse and worse. <laughs> And the, the original point of that was not only the meteorite dropping onto this farmland, but also, most importantly, the scientists clobbering away at it, opening it up, basically, making it into this dangerous object. So this strive for knowledge is inherently something that's threatening to ourselves. One of my favorite lines from Bloodborne is when you, when you fight Maria in the Old Hunters DLC, she's just sitting on a chair and she, she looks like a corpse. And when you approach her, she grabs your hand and says, a corpse should be wet, left well, well enough alone. You know, like, how, how dare you even attempt to learn more about something that should be uncracked, like the meteor that had the color out of space from it. It's this thing that he gets at where not only are there things that we don't understand, but that's not the horrifying stuff. It's scary. But the horrifying stuff is the inner drive to figure it out and want to know more. And the fact that we'll never get there is the true horror of Lovecraft, I think. And, and just like expecting that everything in the universe has to abide by the same rules that people do. Because, you know, we, have, we, begin, we begin and we end. So we think to ourselves that everything must begin and end. We, we kind of project that ideology upon everything in our surroundings, even though it doesn't really owe us that courtesy, um, which might be a bit of a side tangent, but um, the color out of space, just kind of looping a little bit back. It just it that is two of like my favorite Lovecrafting Lovecraft elements, or at least two of the ones that I always like consider very Lovecrafting. The fact that I believe that's a letter written by someone who talked to a neighbor of the family. I believe that's yes. how it's structured. It's like a a reporter or something like that. And I just think that was such an interesting way to do that. And also being like, color came out of the rock. I can't describe it anyway. And then just like moving on, you're like, oh, it's something I can't even, couldn't even tell you about. And then just sort of like. Yeah, it's, it's always this element of the, of something that cannot be grasped, that cannot be described, that cannot be rationalized, that cannot be explained. Bloodborne, the game we keep referencing, is such a perfect example because it does that with the mechanic of insight, right? Is it, it's called insight, right? Where you gather these yeah. insight points and then over time you start like seeing these weird creatures, these, I guess you could only... The amygdala. Amygdala, yes. Oh, beautiful name, the amygdala, which isn't that also a reference to a part of the brain? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's near the brain stem or something. It's a very important part of the brain. <laughs> <laughs> they are basically like the old ones, you could say, in, mm. uh, in Bloodborne. And I think that's so interesting that this, the more knowledge you gain, the higher this insight value rises, the more you can look into this abyss of, well, let's just say madness for lack of a better word, but also the more you lose touch with rationality and the more you are susceptible, I think, to this um, frenzy status that yes. can be inflicted upon you. It's such an, a beautifully intricate mechanic that, yeah, I, I think this is delicious, actually, that a gameplay mechanic, like a rule system, 
that is programmed with numbers and that you can interact with attempts to capture the feeling, the sensation that you might have while reading a story by Lovecraft. One of the final stages of Bloodborne is the Nightmare of Mensis, where you're kind of going to the apex of whatever is happening in Bloodborne. You still can't really wrap your head around it. And by virtue of having played the game all the way to that point, you probably have amassed a lot of insight points like you were talking about, Stefan. And so that area is filled with enemies that give you the frenzy status. And the more insight that you have, the easier you're going to die there by losing your mind. So it's actually a better idea to relinquish all of your insight, let go of your knowledge so that you can have an easier time getting through this crazy nightmare that you're supposed to go through. I am so mad. I never knew that mechanic. And now every time <laughs> I play that area, I get absolutely demolished. And I always yep. think this game is stupid. That's when I'm done. That's like, <laughs> so I'm always like, I hate this game now. <laughs> Hidden mechanics. It does make a lot of sense. Another, another like very, a very cool mechanic I like in Bloodborne that is related to the insight is it'll sort of set up these stages in addition to like the combat and like the exploration. Um, there is a door they have to learn the password for. Mm. And then, and then there's a guy behind the door. like, you never know the password. I don't know. And then he says, you need the password and you, you beat a boss. You get the password. You go talk to him. And he's like, okay, welcome. Welcome. Come on in. And the door's open and he's a skeleton. So he was never there. And then you walk in the door, you get an insight. So I thought that was so interesting that you get it through like items and fighting bosses, but also through the world, they'll show you these scenes that are like, you, you're getting this insight. You're kind of, you're going a little more mad in this, from just this experience. You're having encounters with something that you can't rationalize. And then the insight point that pops up is what gives you this indication of like, hey, something really strange just happened to you. And I just think that it's such a, a small touch too, because it's just like a glimmer. And then like a, it goes up one and you just kind of like, you're like, oh, oh, like you just, it's kind of like a double hit or you see it and then you get that point. And then like something you said, spooky so on, happened. Yeah, you, you get that sort of verification. Like, this is weird. Oh, yep, this is weird. All right, gotcha. I got a point yeah. for it. <laughs> okay, I think we are already in the middle of a subject that we have not yet called out by name, and that is the sanity meter. Uh, maybe we can go into that a little bit more, but before that, we'll take a very short break and we'll be right back. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And we are back talking about Lovecraft and cosmic horror with Richard Mertens. We just were getting into the subject of the sanity meter. And the sanity meter actually originated from Lovecraft. I would say, right? Because it's been, as far as I could find, the first time the sanity meter has been employed in a game, it was a board game of Call of Cthulhu, which was released in 1981. And people are still playing this game as well. And this had already introduced this kind of sanity mechanic. And then later on, it was adopted in other video games. Even nowadays, there's a Call of Cthulhu game. I think it was released in 2018, which uses the sanity meter. There's like, I think, The Sinking City, which is very much Lovecraft-inspired that has a sanity meter. Amnesia, most famously, I think. Yes. Also a sanity meter. So really, Lovecraft is kind of the source material (laughs) for the sanity meter for good reason. Because what else is the sanity meter than an attempt to rationalize madness. You take the scale of madness and you put it in numbers in a seemingly rational equation. I find that super interesting. And it's also the idea of like a measurable amount, kind of like you just said, I'm I'm basically just taking what you said and rewording it a little bit, but like, this is how much you can take. Like these are the numbers. This is the value. After this, you can't handle it anymore and you need to do something. So it, it doesn't build up. And, um, and, and all those games you mentioned absolutely use it. There's also another board game called Arkham Horror that I believe has a mechanic very similar to that. It's always a little daunting to see it, right? So you, you play a game for the first time, you see your health bar, see your stamina most likely, and then it's like your insane meter. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I know where it's this like, is going to go. <laughs> like, yeah, I got to keep track of this now. Great. <laughs> I think what's what's so interesting too is that a lot of the games that use the sanity meter as the core mechanic usually don't give you a weapon or any way to defend yourself it's usually just running away from things or hiding like stefan you mentioned call of cthulhu um, which i actually played within the last year and that game definitely got that part of it right and i think it took a lot of cues from amnesia the dark descent which is where that mechanic really shines because you want to talk about all the things we've mentioned with lovecraft you play as uh, Daniel, which is spooky for me in Amnesia <laughs> the Dark Descent. Uh, and you're a scholar. You're trying to learn about what's happening in this, in this castle and with this weird guy. And 
you don't ha- you're not trained. You don't have any, you know, weapon skills or anything. You're just running away from these things that you can't understand and slowly losing your mind, becoming more erratic as you do. So it's it's I I would actually argue that Lovecraft translates better into video games for reasons like the sanity meter than it does onto the silver screen for movies. There's something about that interactivity that just maybe because of the way that we we discuss like the metaleptic way that these stories are often told where it's from someone's perspective or someone else's perspective to you as a character but i just think it it just works better in video games yeah when you mentioned perspective even in the context of amnesia it's not just that you can't defend yourself it is the fact that if you see the monster if you look at the monster that is the time when you lose sanity already right so you have this kind of this kind of weird double bind that you are in because you're interactively involved that of course you want to see the monster of course there's something moving in a dark <laughs> corner you're going to turn the camera towards it right but that is the worst thing you can do because then you see it and your character is struck by horror you lose sanity points and in the worst case scenario you have this like small mental breakdown you could say which incapacitates you for a couple of seconds so i think that's what makes this interactive engagement with sanity and with the basically the fringes of rationality is what makes it so adaptable for video games. I like to um, to kind of bring it back to Bloodborne. There's when you have the interactivity, the real terror can come in when that interactivity is taken away from you in one way or another. So there's a game for the GameCube, uh, Eternal Darkness, and there's a moment in that where your character. Your, your character avatar just kills himself and you have no control over it. And it's very much in line with this kind of Lovecraftian horror of this thing being, this thing that you think you know being taken away from you. And I'm thinking of, we mentioned the amygdala. There's that, how do you get to the DLC in Bloodborne? You let it take you and it grabs oh, you and just yeah. takes you into this new place. And it's like you rest your control to try to learn more, but in doing so, you open yourself up to all these other horrible things. And and listen, I'm I'm gonna talk about Bloodborne in a, and give it some criticism, but just know Bloodborne is my favorite game of all time. So I'm not. This is not me being hypercritical or anything. But I think Bloodborne does have a tendency, especially in like earlier playthroughs when you're playing like mm-hmm. once or your first or second time, where it loses a bit of the wonder and the and like the immersion and the madness when you keep dying and keep losing and having to reset. So I think in horror games especially, and I think Bloodborne because there's so much to take in, the second you're, it becomes like a really difficult challenge, you lose that immersion right away because you're not afraid, you're not worried to t- turn the corner or take the next step. You're upset, you're mad, you're, you're mad at this monster. You're not like in awe of its wonder and how interesting it is and it's, it's like lore implications. You're saying... I'm going to hit this with an axe until it falls down because I hate it. It's not new. And I think a lot of games do that. I think a lot of horror games try to put like difficult puzzles in or like these sections that are like quick time events. And it's like this is now I'm falling and I'm I'm getting killed and I'm resetting and you just get like a you died on it. And that totally resets my immersion. And so at that point, I think that's when the sanity meter is kind of disabled. So it doesn't really matter what the, for me, I'm not trying to speak for everyone, but the way that you have this meter and you're like, okay, I need to make sure I'm not, I'm seeing the world. You want to see the monster. 
you want to experience everything, but if you do it too much, you'll go crazy. But then if you keep losing and resetting and losing and resetting, now it's just like you're facing the wall running through these passages. You're like, I, I don't want to work. I don't even want to play this anymore. I don't want to play this part anymore. And you lose that immersion. And I think that's like the biggest mistake horror games make. I, I've played a few in my time. And I find that that is like the biggest, the biggest way to like disarm themselves. I'll put it to you, Richard, that what you just said is why I think these Lovecraft games work better than other horror games. Mm -hmm. And I'll say why. So Resident Evil 4 is a very scary game. But if you die a lot, you you kind of, you don't get scared anymore. You know, you just get frustrated. And what you want to see in that game is you want to see the conclusion of the story. So you want to keep going. But with a Lovecraft game, like Bloodborne or Amnesia, there's this sense of like, you really fit the bill of a Lovecraftian protagonist because you become so inured to the horror that all you want is to like see the next thing. You're almost angry at the universe because you're like, <laughs> you're keeping this from me and I know you are and I'm going to find it, right? And then when you find it, it gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> ah, never <I> think, mind. <laughs> yeah. So I think like, I, I'm totally with you, but I almost feel like it's a recursive thing where it, it breaks your immersion to bring you back into it. And other horror games don't do that as well. Mm, that is kind of this quintessential experience of you in any From Software game, really, but let's stick with Bloodborne <laughs> for, for the sake of simplicity now. You come, you run into a new enemy and you have this kind of sensation of overwhelming dread because this enemy is like, it's incomprehensible in its movements. Its design is frightening. It screams. It's like, it's this overwhelming experience that really can, not only the character, but even you yourself as a player, put you in a situation of like total distress. I remember how many times I've played Bloodborne running into a new boss and my heart was like pounding in my chest just because of the way that boss fight and that boss itself was designed. And then over time, you get more into the motions of a sort of instrumental engagement where you're like, okay, learning the attack pad. Okay, I'm not doing this again. Roll, roll and attack, you know, like this kind of thing. <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think there's definitely... It's a very precise observation that horror games often try and often fail, unfortunately, to produce and reproduce this experience of overwhelming dread at the first sight of the monster. And and just to Bloodboard's credit, even though I just criticized it, um, the Ludwig fight, that reveal in the, the Hunt, Old Hunter DLC is one of my favorite um, reveals, I think, and like one of the most terrifying things I've ever seen. Like every time I look at it, I still don't know what I'm seeing. And, and it does eventually become, I want him to die. <laughs> you know, there is certainly, he's like difficult. He does get to that point. Um, but like, I think if that initial reveal is powerful enough, it sticks with you past any sort of frustration. I, I don't want to cut you off, but the reason I think that that DLC is so brilliant is because at the end of it, you defeat the orphan of cost, this, you know, child of a great old one, basically like the son of Cthulhu, if you want to put it in Lovecraft terms. And you get no resolution <laughs> you have no idea what <laughs> sure. it is and I, it just goes back to what maria says which is it should have been left well enough alone like why would you do this this is you're left with this pit like oh why did i do that i put myself and, through hell for nothing <laughs> and in so in some ways you go in some ways the old hunter dlc gives you context to that world which is what you're craving the entire game you're looking for that context you're looking for it all to make sense and you get scraps of it but you, at no point do you get the answer, like like kind of what you were saying. You don't, um, it's not like the payoff, I think you thought, like, 
you get a, a weapon called Ludwig's Holy Blade, and then you meet Ludwig. You're like, oh, cool. Um, you meet Maria, which people talk about. I think they mention her in main game, or maybe they don't, but um, she, she's important to the story in the way that it way that it goes. But then you also are introduced to other nightmares and terrors and things you can't understand. So it's like, okay, now I have this I have to deal with. Like that was all that's all squared <laughs> away. But now I got this. <laughs> if you want to enter the DLC in Bloodborne, then you need to let yourself be grabbed by the amygdala, right? Yeah. And you this emphasizes another aspect that is very crucial to Lovecraftian aesthetics as well as to their adaptation in video games, which is that generally we've we're dealing with very vulnerable protagonists. In Bloodborne, it is one of your most vulnerable moments because you're grabbed by the enemy and you have to give up control uh, to basically submit to this kind of overwhelming creature, to this kind of madness. The same thing goes for other games that we've mentioned, such as Amnesia, where you can't fight back. You're a physically fragile character. You're a mentally fragile character because you're so susceptible to everything you see. Imagine you're playing Gears of War and the soldiers are constantly like having a meltdown whenever a new enemy type occurs right <laughs> so there's a, yeah. an emphasis of human vulnerability that is at the bottom of this and that drives propels these games forward i feel even in that fast-paced game what don't you have compared to other from software games shield a shield oh i thought i was making a joke i'm sorry no, you're, your no, that you're totally right. It's it is kind of a joke because you go into it and you, like there's so many times in that game you're like, boy, I wish I could defend myself, and you can't. The only way you can defend yourself is by pressing onward and being aggressive, and that's really like Daniel in Amnesia. The only way that he can proceed is by proceeding. <laughs> he can't retreat. <laughs> there's no way for him to do that. Sure, and and I think that's like another thing that keeps you moving because I. It keeps you moving through Bloodborne even when it gets difficult and frustrating. It's fun to move in Bloodborne with like the sidesteps as opposed to like the fat rolling and then the moving around and like other from software games. You get to kind of shuffle and you kind of groove and into this like rhythm. And I think that makes moving fun. And when and when the moving is fun in your game, the game is good, right? Like I feel like if your main mechanic is moving and the moving is fun to do, then you, your game is basically like Everything else is just bonus. Yeah, I totally agree. It's almost like a, a Bloodborne at its best is almost like a rhythm game. Yeah. Absolutely. It really yeah. <laughs> it's a terrifying guitar hero that we didn't yeah. even know we wanted. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well, there are also many other, let's say, more indirect or more um, symbolic adaptations of Lovecraft in video games. For example, Arkham Asylum. Uh, I think... The term Arkham, is, if I'm correctly informed, it comes from Lovecraft, right? Because Lovecraft was inspired by a town, I think, called Oakham, if I'm not mistaken. Because he found that town particularly beautiful, particularly inspiring. So he made his own, like, fictional Arkham, and that was adopted by DC Comics. And that's where this kind of Arkham Asylum idea emerged. And suddenly, we stand there and have to realize that the subject is way broader than we might have initially thought, because even something like Arkham Asylum, the Batman games, they also tie into this uh, Lovecraftian aesthetics. There's actually a pretty Lovecraftian character in it. Um, the Warden Sharp, the, the head of Arkham Asylum, thinks that he's possessed by the spirit of Arkham. And so he's writing these journals and leaving these messages cryptically very much like the Call of Cthulhu. Here's a message of a journal of a conversation I had. And so even in the indirect uh, references, there's elements of this 
I'm telling you a story that I heard secondhand that I believe to be true because of personal reasons. <laughs> in in my experience, Lovecraft is at its best when it's a love letter to Lovecraft. I think adaptations often fall short, but I think when people are sort of inspired, like um, Sinking City, for example. Have, have either of you played the, sink, the Sinking City? I know of its existence, but I haven't played it. It's like an open world 20s detective game, mm. but it's very it, it's it's set in the lovecraft world so what you're getting are references to Innsmouth, um references to deities and, and sort of like these um these races like the throgmortons are in there i believe they're in <laughs> they're an ape looking type of creature in in lovecraft and it is it feels like it doesn't get the point and i'm not trying to i'm not a critic i'm not like trying to give this this game a bad review it's thundering here i'm sorry if you heard that Ah, it's beautiful. Some thunder. Richard, cut that out. <laughs> beautiful, perfect setting for the conversation. Oh, that! Ooh, it's a fourth. A fourth guest has entered the chat. <laughs> I feel like it doesn't understand. It doesn't give me what I want, which is the which is the madness and like the the complex dynamics of these of these situations. It just kind of gives me a machine gun and says, "Go get them." What you're hitting on is something that I've I've struggled with with Lovecraft adaptations a lot, which is. They definitely understand the aesthetics of Lovecraft, but they don't understand the ideas, you know, or they, they're not interested in exploring the ideas or the philosophy that Lovecraft had. And I think that one kind of precludes the other, because if, you, if you're looking at a, um, a story that just wants to focus on, you know, being uh, obsessed with knowledge or the fear of the outsider or, you know, the fear of the unknown... Often Lovecraftian imagery will pop up after you're looking into that kind of stuff because it just goes hand in hand. But if you go with the imagery first, it doesn't always mesh, I think. Well, if we're talking about H.P. Lovecraft references, I think Elden Ring does does it best, in my opinion, because oh, interesting. Sure, sure, we see Mr. Octopus and all of his friends um, in other H.P. Lovecraft like inspired games and these sorts of things. But like the hidden cities in Elden Ring, the fact that you like go down these elevators and you find like a big temple and it's like these hidden ruins and and these cities that are totally lost to time that is the lovecraft element that i love that is like my my bread and butter in that capacity like the nameless city uh the temple and and there are more i'm just kind of touching on them at the mountainous or mountains of madness has that as well where they're exploring these old cities and i think that is just it's so overwhelming and they always he always says cyclopean um which is such a great word it's just like ancient colossal architecture and the way that that tells that story I, that's what i like about it and i thought elden ring did that better than any game i'd ever played i remember stefan when you were playing elden ring and you were kind of telling me your journey through the lands between yes. at one point you just said hey did you know there's an entire other map <laughs> <laughs> With the with the kind of weariness of a Lovecraftian protagonist. Yeah, yeah. The exertion when you realize that this game has just begun. Yes. <laughs> Inconspicuous elevator. And, it's, and then you go down there and it's like as if you're exploring Relief, you know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is the city of Cthulhu, of course. The The interesting part about this uh, this Elden Ring illusion is just exactly that. It's Elden Ring, it's not Cthulhu the game or Lovecraft right, right. the game. Maybe Lovecraft is, in a sense, um, like a, it's almost like a, 
a tools a toolkit uh, it's like a, a an assemblage of various different aspects that can make a game really interesting and infuse it with such aspects like the encounters with madness the vulnerability of protagonists the intricacy through which we acquire knowledge and the overwhelming sensation of having done so and put that all into the context of a video game it does not need a cthulhu license to be a good lovecraft game I completely agree, and I don't know if you ever look on Steam and look under the Lovecraft like tag. I do that every so often just because sometimes you see things that aren't really on your radar, and people will just put like a tentacle in it, and it's like, hey, look at this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, well, that's not quite what I'm looking for. Um, but then you find great stuff like uh, there's an independent, there's an indie game called The Shore that is it's kind of like a walking simulator. Mm. A little bit, but it's very, it's kind of like Lighthouse. It's very like that. So you're on an island, so the isolation, you're dealing with madness, you're seeing things you don't understand. And the fact that it do, it does have some of those Cthulhu monsters, the fact that it does have those is kind of a footnote. It, it's because you do have like the madness, you do have these things you don't understand. You're kind of working through these these situations. And then at the end, you're like, oh, I, I know this guy. <laughs> you know, like, this is my old buddy. And, and that just sort of like seals it. Other than that, I was like, this is just like a good psychological horror game and then you see familiar familiar shapes and you say oh this is like an actual lovecraft experience and that's just not what not what i knew i was signing up for in in, a, in the best way of course i mean this is why cosmic horror is a genre right i think it's because of lovecraft really he he hit on these themes and if you start telling stories in that genre then you can't help but call back to the cthulhu man himself and I think it's uh it's it's just virtue of right time, right place, um, and let's be frank, like a, a very xenophobic gentleman from the nineteen hundreds. <laughs> we who, can't forget that. <laughs> we can't well, I think it informs a lot of what he talked about, which was sure. I there's a there's a great joke that um all of the all of the fish people in the Shadow over Innsmouth are just like Italians to H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> this idea that he was just writing about, you know, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. he's he's a bad, he's not a great guy, but he he has some great work. Is our point? <laughs> sure. Death death of the author, I believe, is the phrase. If you could make a Lovecraft game, what would that be? Hmm. I think I would make a, I would make a Lovecraft game in the 1980s, and I would call it Stranger Things. <laughs> 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 uh, I think you might be onto something there. <laughs> That's gonna catch on. That's gonna catch on like wildfire. Yeah. <laughs> A whole lot of money that. <laughs> I think if I made one, my, Sonic the Hedgehog would be there. I'm not sure what <laughs> that else. I'm not sure what that would look like, but it would be Sonic. <laughs> and HP Lovecraft would be there, and I'm not sure. You know, I think it would probably look like you know you you mentioned Richard the the um, Sinking City, where it's just this kind of collection of things that you recognize, and I wonder if I wouldn't be able to divorce a game from those things. So I think if I made a game, it would probably take place in the early 1900s. It would be about a kind of a hard-boiled detective who gets in over his head and learns things that he shouldn't learn. I think that's, to me, this kind of noirish. Uh, the, the noir is kind of the in to the real cosmic horror that you come into later, visiting this town that shouldn't exist with people who are older and stranger than they should be and uh, doing all you can to make things make sense and failing miserably at it. Sure. And if you can introduce the mechanic and why you'd be seeking that knowledge, like like a scholar or an investigator or something like that, that's I feel like that's half the work is you've already yeah. set up these 
these elements and these driving forces that everything else just kind of come, comes naturally to. Well, thank you so very much, Richard, for coming by. It's been my pleasure. To all of you out there, if you have an idea of what a wonderful Lovecraft game would look like, then please reach out to us. You can always do so by going to studyingpixels.com contact. If you want to support us, then you can do so by joining Studying Pixels Plus at studyingpixels.com plus. If you want to follow us, then you can find us on your favorite podcasting app, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, and YouTube. Thank you again, Richard, and we'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.